from Washington. This is the HPS Macrocast with Hamilton Place Strategies and Markets Policy Partners. Good morning. It's Friday, February 5th, 2021. Uh, Tony Prado here with uh, Hamilton Place Strategies. You're listening to the Macrocast. Uh, John Fagan and Brendan Walsh are weekly partners, our regular partners for Markets Policy Partners. Uh, and Matt McDonald with us, my my partner at Hamilton Place Strategies, with us as always with their, at every jobs uh, jobs report. And Matt, like we had the jobs, you know, it's jobs day. We had the non-farm payroll report come out and I'm glad you're here to walk us through it because it's kind of hairy, isn't it? Yeah, it's a little messy. Yeah. This is of note. So yeah, so give me a hot minute just to get through this stuff. Of note, I will, I will point out that this is kind of what I would consider the final job support of the Trump administration. Uh, the Biden administration took office at the end of January. So I'm going to, I guess, round up and call this report for President Trump. And we can, we can take, we've done some uh, number crunching on that, but let's let's go through the jobs report first. So you have a top line um, job creation of 49,000, which is um, nothing to write home about. I would say that even last month when we were talking about the December jobs number, I think we were kind of talking about, we were, we were talking about like, look, this is kind of plateauing and it is what it is until we can really get vaccine deployment. Um, My guess is that January is very much a continuation of that. You know, I don't think that we really saw the ramp up in, and we'll talk about kind of where we are in the pandemic, but I don't think that January reflects uh, some of the momentum we've seen in the past couple of weeks, certainly over the pandemic. So, you know, this is a pretty anemic number signaling where we are in that above all else. But the 49,000 jobs created is paired with a pretty sharp decline in the unemployment rate. So the unemployment rate went from 6.7 to 6.3%. And anytime, anytime you get a disparity between that headline jobs number and the unemployment rate, you need to dig into it a little bit more. And the these are two different surveys. One is an employer survey, one's a household survey. The household survey drives the unemployment rate. Um, for a long time in the kind of post-financial crisis, it was important to read in the jobs numbers <clears throat> the participation rate because the participation rate drives the unemployment rate. So like you've got to You've got to think about it as a numerator effect and a denominator effect. You can have the unemployment rate go down either by people getting jobs or by people losing the, leaving the workforce, right? So, so that's the thing that we wanted to look at. And we see with a decline this sharp, not surprisingly, we see both. We see a decline in the unemployed of 600,000, an increase in the employed of 200,000, which leaves about 400,000 people who are kind of no longer in, in the unemployed category, but aren't accounted for in, in employment. So that would normally be, oh, they dropped out of the workforce or something like that. The weird thing in this report is that almost all of that number just on the math can be attributed to actually a decline in the um, non-institutional population, which is, mm-hmm. I guess that's the, more like the denominator of the denominator, right? So the participation rate ticked down a smidge, but wasn't really that notable. And part of what we're at, and, and a lot of this decline uh, can be attributed to actually like a population decrease. But part of that is that 
This is the January jobs report includes a population adjustment for the entirety of the last year. So all that to say is that it's a little, you know, I wouldn't read this necessarily in the, you know, the numbers are accurate to the best of BLS's ability and the seasonal adjustments, the population adjustments, this is all pretty complicated stuff right now and, and difficult to handle, but but that is kind of what's going on mathematically underneath the numbers. Um, so uh, so it's, it's a little hard to read in that context, but this, I wouldn't read this as a like, oh, everybody dropped out of the labor force this month and right. that's what's driving it. That's not actually it. And it's an interesting, I mean, I can't, I can't actually recall the last time that we had this kind of a driver in the jobs numbers where a pop a t- overall population decline of the non-institutional civilian population was actually driving the numbers. And that's just something that, you know, historically just kind of really doesn't happen. And so to the extent that there's COVID impact, there's an aging population impact, there's a lots of stuff kind of under the hood on the numbers here. And I think it's something that, uh, you know, anyone who follows jobs numbers and economics and stuff is just going to have to track a little closer going forward. Yeah. And this one's a hard one always because usually we have, you know, you hire for, for Christmas selling season. And then, then, so normally a million and a half people are laid off technically in January. So it's a hard one as is. In COVID times, it's basically impossible, especially on the first print. And, and look at the the revisions for for December. Uh, we're down to what two two twenty three. So yeah. I think that's more the the important story is. Yes, it's, it's not that we we are we're just not creating many jobs. You know, the, the economy has stalled out. But I think that's the thing to take from it. We, what, what was the uh, what were the, uh, the the continuing claims um, uh, numbers? Uh, and, or, so and, the last and, two weeks uh, have come down. We're down to, uh, well, I think it was well, 725, right? Yeah, those are initial claims. So where, where, where are we on? Uh, oh, we continuing claims. Um, yeah. It was five point, it was about five million, a little over five million. So, and, and, and not much change in that number, if I remember. I They've been coming down over the course of the month, yeah. But yeah. It, 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 that is stalled out also. And also, it, continuing claims are, is with a two-week lag. So you still do have the uh, a little bit of issues of because the people got pushed out because yep. Congress didn't pass the CARES Act in time. The the, the um, you know look it, it, and we could we could uh, you know, we could look at sectors uh, on some of this too which you have to dive into but I, I, look I think it's safe to say that we're there is you know some movement around these numbers and they are kind of hinky uh, because of the population uh, adjustments. And as you mentioned, Brendan, the uh, the seasonal adjustments um, that that we go through, and so we'll look for trends going forward. The big picture is what you just said, right? It's like still kind of flattish on job creation. We are kind of stuck where we are, where it seems like yeah. everybody who can work in a COVID economy is working, and everybody who can't work in a COVID economy is not working. Uh, and until we, you know, bust out with, uh, you know, either, you know, more speedy, probably more speedy uh, vaccines is what we're really talking about. We're probably stuck in this uh, in this rut for a while. And the, the large bulk of those those folks who are unemployed, they're still all in the same sectors. Um, yep. 
Uh, and and now uh, a lot of them are under uh, two feet of snow, so that's not good for February employment either. <laughs> well, I think that's the that's the context that is important here for the markets, particularly, which is that this is we had a pretty lousy run of data in December. We had the surprisingly disappointing U.S. retail sales. We had the negative number on December non-farm payrolls, which was actually revised lower. Uh, it came in initially at uh, negative 140,000, and uh, the revision is negative 227,000. Wouldn't have made a huge difference, but still, it seemed to be teeing us up for the beginning of a really long, dark, cold winter. Certainly, Fed officials were saying that. We were getting the resurgence in cases. It was very disturbing. And there was a sense that December is just the beginning and we're going to be really in the trough here for the next few months. And that narrative has evaporated here over the last week or so as the data has begun to pick up. And this coming into this number was expected that this, this, is, a, this is a pretty good number given where we are, you know, in the in the in COVID and uh, what people might have thought just a month ago was going to be happening in the economy now. We, and this and this came after a very positive uh, surprise to the upside on the privately compiled ADP data that came out on Wednesday, and uh, the n- initial jobless claims have been better than it's still elevated, but better than expected for the last three weeks. So people were kind of leaning; market participants were kind of leaning into this number as another uh, positive surprise. Uh, it didn't it didn't work out that way necessarily, but it's nuanced enough, and, and the the nuances that Matt went through a lot of. It seems though a lot of Wall Street has uh, has maybe just uh, thrown up their hands and kind of gone about their business. Price action hasn't changed all that much. I think you have to think. I mean, I, you know, we'll get we'll get into this. We have to think that. Uh, well, first of all, you know, we do we do have this, you know, nine hundred billion dollar plan that is not factored in these numbers yet, right? Right. It came came after uh, this survey, uh, so that's you know just factoring its way in, or I guess it's a, maybe just started the, at the at the beginning of this survey period. Um, and if you're uh, on the street right now, you, there's nothing in this report that tells you um, that they're going to pull the plug on on um, on uh, on a second plan. So, you know, it's uh, pedal to the metal, right? I mean, uh, we got got yeah, sim- coming. We got more stimulus coming, and they just passed reconciliation, or they, or they they're, I'm sorry, they passed a budget resolution last night, so they could start the reconciliation bill process. And so one way or another, a minimum of another trillion dollars is going to be coming uh, and, and, and feeding into this economy. Yeah, uh, I have a question on, on reconciliation. It, it's more about negotiation tactics. So you, you have the 10 Republican senators that offered, what, 600, 650 billion. Yeah. You can probably negotiate that up a little higher. Because when you go through the reconciliation process, that has to be scored. So it's not free money. If you were the Biden administration, why wouldn't you just take the 600 today, pass it, so that you can subtract that from the bill in the reconciliation? Uh, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, because uh, you could probably get you know bipartisan support, but I doubt. I wonder if you would get bipartisan support for a standalone 600 plus billion dollar bill. Um, yeah, I mean, like, would would they vote for it if they knew that you were still going to go plus it up? In that's the question. Yeah, that's the yeah. question. I think probably not, right? I think it probably. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. either it's one or the other, but not, uh, but not both. Not both. Democrats yeah. are saying, 
it's not one or the other. It's one. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. And that, one, not the other, you know? Uh, and that's a statement. There's a, there's a statement being made with this approach. This time last week, it wasn't clear whether the Biden administration was going to seek a bipartisan uh, path, with a, which would necessarily mean a smaller number. Their commitment to the, the reconciliation process, uh, basically saying to the GOP, you know, we're we're going to do this without you, and uh, and and going their going their own way. I think is a you know that's a that's a statement that they are going to forcefully push their policy agenda, and uh, and I think that it's also a test case to see if they can drag moderates like you know the the, the king of the Senate uh, Democrat uh, centrist uh, mansion. And uh, and the other along with them. So that group found um, like an, that group that the group of ten senators coming in at six hundred and eighteen billion dollars or whatever found an unexpected ally this morning, didn't they? In a um, in the form of Larry Summers. Uh, yeah. Chance you know, to see Larry's op-ed in the Journal. I'm sorry, in the Washington Post uh, this morning, where you know kind of goes through the math. And Larry, and Larry let's, to summarize Larry's point, you know, Larry's uh, argument on this is. Um, go big. I'm all for going big. Yes, we did in fact not go big enough back in 2009. We undershot the output gap by roughly $20 billion a month. And um, so definitely go big and go over. But if you're looking at like sort of what, you know, what we know today about the output gap and what, and what's coming through the pipeline and what one point nine trillion dollars would do is that you're not just going to overshoot the output gap. You're going to have you know, three times the estimated output gap. So three times, you know, so if you're going to hit it on the mark, you get to one third, one third happens to be in the $600 billion uh, range. And so if I were the, 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 that group of 10 senators this morning, I'd be out on the Senate floor with Larry Summers op-ed saying, Larry gets it. Larry has the math, right? We should be in this, uh, in this range. In fairness, in fairness to Larry, I would say that the framing of this was also as a caveat to priorities on the left going forward. And he was very much framing it, not necessarily as like a, Hey, this is too big. We should be more modest, Mm -hmm. but just kind of in a, in a sense of like, okay, if this is, if this is where you want to spend all your political capital, this may be it. And I think that that is the pause that he was trying to, you know, give to the the progressives in his party to say, like, look, if we do this later in the year, there may be no room for, you know, student loan reform, infrastructure spending, um, yeah. universal pre-K, you know, go down the hit list. Uh, so... Yeah, and it's a it, it's a fair point, and there's no public so there's no public investment in this, and you may be foregoing the, public investment in the future. The interesting thing is, while Larry ran the numbers, I would say that it is. I'm not sure that this is a knowable thing, right? Is that there is an aspect of <laughs> yeah. the lesson the last time around, and he alluded to it, is that we didn't go big enough, and I think that the the instinct, both from policymaker perspective and among the most economists, I would say, is to lean into it and the costs of of not going big enough are worse than the costs of going too big. And so, you know, the, yeah, you know, understanding the back of the envelope math that he's working off of, you know, I'm not sure that, <laughs> I'm not sure that like, you, you can't perfectly predict that either. 
I agree. Yeah, never be to take the yeah. landing. It's never going to be to the penny. And, uh, you know, we've seen, we saw this in, uh, in 2009, not all of, and we saw this in the last bill, the HEROES Act, not everything was spent. And it does, you know, some of these are not the quick hit individual checks. Some of them are over a period of time. And, you know, we, we saw a lot of leftover money uh, from, from that initial one that was repurposed. So, yeah, that's true. And look, and, and, and I, I'm, I'm, um, <clears throat> you know, my back of the uh, envelope, I'm proud of my back of the envelope mouth back in 2009, because I'm, you know, I remember being on CNBC and saying, it's too small, you know, and, uh, and, um, and was saying, like, you know, given the size of the economy at that time, we probably needed to be that, you know, that probably needed to be double, but constructed a lot um, uh, better than than the way they had it constructed. The, and, the okay. construction piece is interesting, because I yeah. do think that, you know, what could happen if Larry's right, a big chunk of the, of, you know, eight, eight, at least some of the difference between that gang of 10 and the Biden administration is, is, I believe, state aid. And it'll be interesting to see that if we overshoot how some of the policy priorities that Larry is talking about that may fall victim to overspending could shift to the state level where people may say, well, you know, you just got a big check. How can you use it for some of these priorities at that level too, which, which could be an interesting dynamic going forward. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and um, you know, we could do it, like it could end up the way, uh, you know, the way John talked about in terms of, um, you know, you could just have leftover money and then you deal with leftover money, you know, or which I feel like I keep like, you know, beating the drum on this, but, you know, I, I don't know why you don't do triggers for, you know, to release the rest of the money. You know, we did it with TARP. It worked really well with TARP. You know, we did half the money. Everyone says a 700, you know, billion dollar plan it was actually like a $350 billion plan with some extra, you know, in the second tranche. And it wasn't, you know, it like, you know, it wasn't all $700 billion dollars but it was available and it was there. And it's, it's what I would do in this case, you know, it probably, you know, what they probably need to do is split this in half and say, we'll come back again in, you know, eight months. And, you know, we'll set up the process for a vote in eight months that says, you know, if we, and it could be a simple majority, you know, just simple majority. If, uh, if it's needed, you come back and you, you get, uh, you get the rest of it depending on how things go with, uh, with the economy. The other point that Larry makes, which like, you know, for all of us, I don't know, I'm old enough. I don't know if you guys are old enough to actually like with, you know, have lived with inflation, you know, above 4%, you know, like it's, it seems like of another era, you know, another time, yeah. like, like black and white television and inflation, you know, it's like some other era. And so most people haven't lived with inflation at all. And he's making the point that like, maybe it's maybe a generation that's going to get, have to live, you know, live within some inflation again, because we're talking about a, a boost to the domestic economy that is in its size, you know, uh, par- you know, the, the only parallel to it is World War II level spending. So, you know, so that's a thing, like, we'll see, like, we'd all love to see some, uh, you know, uh, the Fed talked about, we'd love to, you know, be happy to see some, inflation. we'd all love to see some inflation, but. Yeah, I think that, that, that also raises the question of, of how you measure inflation. Obviously, you know, we, this generation, my generation, you know, I vaguely remember black and white TVs and inflation and, uh, and my first paper bank account paying me like 18% interest. Right. Right. <laughs> which was outstanding. 
back in the I remember day. I remember my father being extremely excited about when he refinanced his mortgage to nine percent. Totally. I remember I remember my mother being really excited about getting a ten percent mortgage in nineteen seventy-nine. The inflation <laughs> we have now is education, childcare, healthcare costs. That's the inflation. And we have obviously asset price inflation. Housing price, too, yeah. Housing, yeah. And so this, the generations past, uh, more recent generations have experienced it, but just in a very different way. And in a way that isn't particularly well captured in the core PCE, which is at 1.4%. If you went around and asked people, you know, how do you feel about the cost of living being so, (laughs) being so tame? Right, but but, yeah, but look, I feel like an idiot. I feel like an idiot talking, even talking about inflation, but like, here we are, we're talking about it because- what if, you know, like, we, you know, J&J uh, is uh, just, a, you know, appealed to the FDA for emergency uh, approval of their, um, you know, one dose uh, vaccine. I've been saying that uh, for a couple of weeks that I think this, like, it has a feel like we're go- we are going to accelerate much faster on, on vaccine delivery and, yep. and people are going to jump the gun on, on uh, you know, returning to normal because we're going to see some that we're already seeing decline in cases and hospitalizations and deaths. I think that's going to accelerate into the spring. People are going to have vaccines. They're going to be bursting to get out. And I think like we're going to see economic activity returning much faster than we might probably thought reasonable a couple of months ago. So if you have that happening, plus this like super fuel of money, Game on. It's it's not to me. It's not unreasonable to have that discussion about inflation and or just you know money going into places like you know uh, one of the theories around GameStop was like you know idle dudes sitting around with you know uh, excess savings to go spend on kooky things like GameStop. They have a lot less excess savings today than um, than they did before. That money's been shuffled around a little bit, but you know. There are consequences for having, uh, you know, excess, uh, you know, excess money floating around in different places. I have a question going back to the triggers. So I, I love the idea of triggers, but why not take it a step farther and put in this this package long term triggers? So when the economy goes into recession, when the unemployment rates hit some sort of, um, you know, level that just Congress cut you a check, you know, we, we, we increase unemployment benefits. Uh, do, do you think that's possible? That could be included or, or yeah, it's a, it, do you think it's good policy? Well, I don't know. What, I don't know whether it could be included. Um, I think it's, I think it's a really wise uh, way to go. And, you know, I mean, we have, there are people like uh, Martha Gimbel, who's been a, and, uh, and I'm sorry, Martha has been an advocate for this. Claudia Sam. Jason Furman, right? Lots of people who are advocate, and, I, and I'm an advocate for it too. I think like automatic stabilizers make yeah. sense. It has always and, been- And it showed problem. that it really worked back in uh, April, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like you have this situation where, you know, um, you know, people are, um, you know, people are out of work. We're seeing a downturn in the economy and uh, and you have this fight over extending on, of, of, you know, of, uh, you know, the federal extension of unemployment benefits, um, 
then extending it, you know, it's usually it's 26 weeks. Uh, the recessions don't last 26 weeks. They last longer than that, especially, you know, I, usually a slow return. So you want to, you'd rather see it as an audit. I think audit. that stuff, I think that stuff is, is really interesting and should be explored further. But I, I also think that it requires a fairly sophisticated understanding and reading of both the economic side of the equation and the political side of the equation, because you, you know, Congress can't, it isn't able to tie the hands of future Congresses and you get, you, there are, you know, the legislation is littered with examples of fixes that get changed literally every Congress that was a policy that they came up with in the past yeah. and this sort of thing. So you have to have, I mean, the most interesting example of something like this, which isn't, isn't exactly, I think what you're talking about, but um, you know, when, when they implemented the, the uh, kind of spending cuts, the sequestration piece of, during the Obama administration, there was there was a, I, I would say that at the front end, there was a difference of political opinion on whether that stuff would happen or not. And so kind of calibrating political momentum with how you can uh, incorporate kind of some of the economic triggers into that, it, you need to understand both sides of it, because just a straight, a straight economic, it's a, a straight a straight piece of legislation that has an economic trigger baked into it isn't necessarily going to happen if the politics don't support that. So you really have to kind of understand all the dynamics. But it works with, um, you know, it works with food stamps, obviously. Like, so, you know, food stamps are, it's an entitlement, Mm -hmm. you know, and you can go, you apply and you get them as long as you qualify. And, uh, and then it goes away when you, when it, you know, when you're back to work. So that's like, so it works with that. I think, you know, I think, but you, but you're, you make a really important point. It's like wh- one of the things that's an issue when you have an economic downturn, wh- whether it is or is not um, associated with, you know, some kind of financial crisis, or in this case, you know, a health crisis, um, is that it's not, you know, unemployment isn't the only problem. Unemployment is usually the result of other uh, disruptions in the economy. And usually there's some effort to deal with those other disruptions in the economy, and, but you need a vehicle to get that done. You need some pressure to go do a, you know, the, with the, uh, you know, some of the actions that took place during the global financial crisis, or in this case, the health crisis, a nice vehicle is to have the pressure of doing unemployment insurance. And so part of the problem yeah. is like that screwed up government where like we can only, you know, sure. you can attach things to must pass bills. And if you're in a recession, unemployment extension is a must pass bill. And so it's a nice vehicle to actually go get these other things done and to get people to vote for things that's, they might not otherwise want to vote for. That's totally right. That's, I think that there's a, a this, is, this relates to um, earmarks and like some right. of the, there's been discussion again recently about the wisdom of whether getting rid of those, if saving a million dollars on some project was worth the dysfunction of Congress of not being able to pass, you know, billion dollar legislation. And um, so you always got to be careful of the unintended consequences on your on good government reforms. You never know where it's going to land. Yeah. All right. Hey, let's take let's take a break and, uh, and we'll come back. You've been listening to the Macrocast. The Sadie Collective's 2021 annual conference will take place on February 19th and 20th, celebrating Dr. Alexander's 100th anniversary of becoming the first African-American to earn a PhD in economics. The two-day virtual event will feature leading Black women across economics, business, tech, healthcare, and policy. Email sadiecollective at hamiltonps.com or 
visit sadiecollective.org slash S-A-C-E 2021 for more information. And we're back on the MacroCast. Uh, Tony Frado here. Matt, you teased us earlier with, um, you know, the, the note. I know you guys did a, a bunch of work on taking a look at, you know, um, the whole the whole chapter of the Trump economy. I mean, we'll probably be talking about it for a long time in the future, too, as we do go through benchmarking and things. But uh, your first look on on, you know, uh, first take on the, the Trump economy in the in, in the wake of the final Trump administration, Trump era uh, jobs report. Yeah, I thought we were going to, I thought our our uh, excellent jobs team was going to have to scramble more this morning on recalculations, but 49,000 doesn't even come into rounding consideration with some of the numbers over the course of uh, four years. But yes, Trump, uh, this, this is the last report uh, for the Trump era of, on jobs. Um, where do we kind of... L- l- hash out on this stuff, slightly more than half of the 22 million jobs that were lost at the beginning of the pandemic are back. Um, And uh, you still have 4 million uh, in the long-term unemployed category. When you look over the totality of his, of his term, um, he ended up losing close to 3 million jobs lower at the end than at the beginning, which uh, you know, has not happened in at least the recent era of where it's, it's um, where jobs are actually lower at the end at the beginning. Um, what's actually really interesting is that our team did a, just an extrapolation of trend lines for a forecast of what the jobs numbers would have landed at in on earth 2.0, where the pandemic did not happen. And uh, what they found was while while he ended up losing three million, he actually would have created close to nine million jobs over one term, absent the pandemic, absent you know, absent a lot of other stuff. If just the trend line had continued, you know, who knows? We were we're late in the cycle as it was, but nine million jobs over one term is significant. Um, he would not have passed. And Trump, uh, Trump bragged very early on that he was going to be the best jobs president in history. He would not have, uh, you know, if, if that, you know, again, hypothetically, if somehow he were able to continue that over two terms, because it's a little complicated to compare one term to two term presidencies. But, you know, Clinton was close to 23 million new jobs over that eight year period. Um, Obama over eight years, um, was uh, a little over 11 million new jobs. So, you know, the piece that we were talking about earlier in terms of, I think, part of the lesson that economists are taking from the the Trump era uh, is that there is more rope in the economy and more room for stimulus on the fiscal and monetary side and that we can run hot for a little bit. So it'll be interesting uh, you know, even even despite kind of the the headline number being bad on the back end, I think that uh, understanding kind of the economic frame and thinking that people are looking at this from is that if you look at the underlying numbers prior to that, it really was a pretty an economy that was humming along pretty good. And I think that the consensus is how do we get back to that as fast as we can? I, I was wondering your thoughts on the 
the trajectory of jobs, there's a question, obviously, the Fed, when they talk about the, the recovery, they're focused on the near-term downside and the healing that has to go on in particularly the service sector jobs. The pandemic has accelerated a lot of trends. One of those trends, which we, which we assume perhaps it's accelerated, is the use of automation and other things uh, that might impede this, uh, the, the recovery process. Do you think that that's going to come into play over, over the next uh, few years? Is there a risk in your mind, Matt, of structural unemployment as you know, automation and other uh, you know, labor-saving aspects, even self-driving technology, uh, comes into play? I mean, the, I think the thing that you have to believe in order to think that uh, technological innovation outpaces I mean, basically what you're, what, what that frame of question, I mean, this is, you know, this is like kind of the technology destroying jobs or does it, it help jobs with better um, productivity and all the rest of the stuff. The, you know, the reason you would believe that that would be true in my mind is if you think that technology is advancing at a rate that people are not capable of adopting or reskilling, Right. So some of the really, some really interesting economic research has centered around like, um, you know, age of popular, age of workers in a company and how that company performs in terms of growth and that sort of thing, right? Thinking about kind of cohorts of adoption and how people are able to, you know, when I'm helping my parents try to sign up for their, their COVID vaccine, returning yeah. to like, my youth as a 12 year old where I'm setting like the VCR to record or whatever, (laughs) there's an element, there's an element of how quickly can workers adapt to the changes that are coming. So on the downside in this environment, I would say, okay, uh, you know, companies are really accelerating innovation and adoption of some of these things. And there's going to be need for less workers on the back end. The flip side I would say is that, you know, people, individual actors, as opposed to firm actors, don't have a choice anymore to adopt this. I mean, it's no long, it's no longer viable to kind of whatever, have your emails printed out for you or like not know how to do Zoom or some of this stuff. I mean, a lot of this, the, people can learn and these are learnable skills. And the question in my mind is really, did this exercise force some of the learning that maybe workers in the past were a little reluctant to engage in. And if so, I think you'll see, I think you'll see benefit to the, to the positive, but it's certainly, it's certainly going to result in changes, changes and churn and all the rest of it that, you know, we might have, uh, we might have as much destruction in the creative destruction over the next couple of years as, as creativity. And we'll just have to see. There are, there are other big factors going on is, is, is something I you know, think about with, um, you know, when you talk about the nominal numbers um, in job creation, you know, for most of our history, you could make an argument that, you know, there, to a large degree, it's a function of, uh, you know, increasing size of the working age population in the country also, right? We should, should create more jobs in four years, even at a steady state, you know, uh, but we're actually seeing declines in the working age population in the United States. Yep. Right? It flattened off in, uh, you know, since about 2014, 2015. Um, we have not, we're, we, we are not, this is not an increasing working age population 
country. Well, we need to get back to increases in the size of the working age population. But uh, that's what makes actually, and truthfully, uh, and, and to be to be fair, uh, you know, the job creation in the first you know few years, the end of the Obama years also, and the first years of the, uh, the of the um, Trump administration, um, that's pretty powerful job creation. You know, those are big numbers for you know when you're in the midst of a uh, uh, decreasing uh, workforce. Yeah, it's a great point, Tony, and like the the. The underlying population revisions in this job report, I think, are a signal of trends that we have to watch in the future. And if you look at it from that perspective, too, you may have technology efficiencies as a dimension that's saving our butt in a context where you can't count on workforce expansion or, I mean, you know, uh, you don't have to be old enough to remember inflation to remember the coming war for talent era of like the late 1990s and early 2000s when people were really preoccupied by uh, retiring baby boomers and who's going to take their slot and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, we might be, we might be hitting some of those trends in the years to come as well. I mean, one thing, one thing I'll tell you is like, and we haven't, you know, we haven't really gotten to the aftermath point of the pandemic you know, we had the 9-11 Commission. We had the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission. We don't have the Coronavirus Commission yet. That will come. Um, the other thing that people, I, you know, we, I've seen a few pieces on this, but I don't think the full implication is there, is, um, you know, there's going to be a baby bust as a result of this as well, in all likelihood. Um, really you had, important point, yeah. You, the, here's a nugget for you, is that, the post-financial crisis baby bust is going to hit the job market around 2030, just as the last of the baby boomers are leaving the job market, right? So yeah. these, these like big fat crisis episodes that we live, to, live through, just they just reverberate through the economy for years, um, so, I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be, I mean, back to John's original point, it's going to be a lot of big shifts in a lot of different ways. And it's tough to predict kind of where some of this stuff will hash out over time. You, yeah, you also have, to- you also have a generation of lower income kids who, who haven't been in school and, and they're never coming back. The, um, I, I think it's, you talk about the, you know, think, when you think about things that you know and don't know, uh, if you had asked me a year ago, um, what would be a result of, you know, uh, a, you know, people working from home in the house together, you know, would be a baby boom, not a baby bust. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Yeah. It's, if there's one thing people learn, it's like being in a house with kids <laughs> for all day long, it's, <laughs> it's, they've reached their limit, you know, like no more of this. <laughs> one, of, one of the other things is, uh, is a lesson. Certainly, if you're sitting in the policymaking seats in Washington, D.C., you've looked at this episode and redefined what national security is. And, you know, we've seen this as a, you know, there's the the drive to reshoring was something that the Trump administration had already set in in in, in terrain. Obviously, it was uh, bring bring home American jobs, buy America, that sort of thing. And it's taken on, uh, at least in, in major components, a, uh, a very much a you know, defense against this kind of stuff. We've got the pharmaceutical supply lines, PPE, all that stuff. Uh, there's a redefinition of what 
what we need to have in the U.S. as the critical functions. That's what the, the Department of Homeland Security has their 55 critical functions of the United States. It's very interesting. It's a very interesting list. And uh, they're prioritizing uh, making sure that those are as, you know, as domestically uh, sound and uh, and really, you know, reliable in times of crisis as we need them to be. Uh, and so that is, you know, these are these are things that the Trump administration, as, as, as I said, had kind of kicked off in a different with a different tone, but they've uh, they've taken on a, diff- a greater significance, I think, in some ways. Okay. Hey, let's take our last break and, uh, and we'll come back and look ahead a little bit. You've been listening to the HPS Macrocast. On the first Friday of every month, HPS analyzes the latest jobs and labor market data in a digestible format. Sign up for our reports at HamiltonPlaceStrategies.com or on Twitter at HPS Insight. We're back on the Macrocast. Brandon, anything to look forward to next week? Actually, going back to your inflation point, we do get inflation data uh, in the U.S. and Europe. And the last two two prints have been higher than expectations. So uh, on the core PCE, which is the one that the Fed looks at, we're up to 1.5% from a, a low of 0.9% back in, uh, you know, the depths of the, the pandemic. So, you know, still far from the 2% uh, target, but, uh, you know, it's getting back on people's radars. Uh, and then, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the impeachment uh, trial starts next week. I think it does. I think we'll have uh, be some entertainment. I don't know what, uh, I don't know what that's going to be mean for uh, macroeconomic news, but um, it'll... Yeah, it'll, it'll, we'll see what it does to the stimulus negotiations. They're obviously contending there, and it's a tight schedule in the Senate, uh, but uh, we'll see. Also, the Super Bowl, Tom Brady, in it again. Oh, yeah. Yep. Super I Bowl might Sunday. watch. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of kind of bored by I'm kind of bored by this game. I don't want to be and it's it's bittersweet, but uh our Tom Brady into the history books, we'll see. I mean he's he's something else. He is something else. I, I have to get, have to give him credit. He is there and uh Belichick is not. <laughs> All right, guys, have a great weekend. Uh we'll see you next week on the Macrocast. Thank you for listening to the HPS Macrocast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share.